Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast that dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean Runcunis, and you know my friend. He's in that small Google Meet box waving his hands. His name is Hunter Sagona. Hunter and I believe that there are many people who have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, and talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Today we will talk to frequent guest of this show, incredible musician, artist, and a member of the liminal ensemble, Nicole Murray. Nicole Murray is a flautist and teacher based in Buffalo, New York. Her approach to teaching is based firmly in the belief that all students should enjoy playing music, and it is the role of the private teacher to help each student find their own unique musical voice. As a flautist, Nicole subs with several orchestras, including the Erie Philharmonic, Catskill Symphony, Southern Tier Symphony, Amherst Symphony, and the Orchard Park Symphony. Her passion project is the Liminal Space Ensemble, a new musical collective comprised of several Buffalo professional musicians and guest artists. She received her bachelor's degree in flute from SUNY Fredonia, a master's degree from Ithaca College, and an artist diploma from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Our musical quote for today is, do it again on the next verse and people think you meant it. Chet Atkins. So without further ado, let's welcome Nicole to the podcast. All right, and we are on with Nicole. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you. Super excited right, to yes, be back. Actually, it's more like welcome back, back, back. <laughs> um, so we'll, <laughs> this is a stupid joke. Uh, so we'll jump right into it. Um, the first song that you want to talk about is by uh, Allison Loggins Hull, and it is called Hammers. Um, so actually a majority of the pieces that I have on today's playlist are going to be featured in Liminal Space Ensemble's performance on April 30th. Um, ah. We're doing a show in conjunction with a local art gallery. And what we did, it's super cool. Um, they have an exhibit on right now called Making Strange. And we paired each piece with an artwork. So Ooh. it kind of gives you like a sonic representation of um, each art piece. And it's not just paintings, it's sculptures, it's everything. So for this particular piece, um, the artwork that we paired it with is a sculpture of like a sewer manhole cover. But it's really, really cool <laughs> because you can like you can hear like like within the sculpture it's like a multimedia work you can hear these like soundscapes from like a new york city um like block okay and so this piece is perfect because um allison loggins hall the composer she wrote the piece based on the sounds that she heard outside her apartment in new york city so we perfect perfect match um, and Alison Loggins Hall has been, long been a, an idol of mine. She is a flutist um, and she is one half of the flute duo Flutronics. 
which is a really, it's as cool as the name would imply. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They do a lot of new works, um, both with Allison writing and also commissions. Um, And if you ever get a chance to check out any of their performances, you actually should. Um, I've seen them a few times. Um, They came to my undergrad. um, And also I saw them at the National Food Association convention and their show is like just fire. It's like Mm -hmm. an electrifying performance. So I really admire um, that ensemble. That's very cool. And it's nice that it fits so well with the, uh, I mean, obviously that's why you chose the piece, but it fits so well with the the artwork that you chose to go with it, um, which I guess now brings up the question, you know, I, I had thought without knowing that backstory to the piece that it sounded tribal. And I guess they do call New York the concrete jungle. So it still sort of works. But um, why do you think when she wrote the piece, she chose this particular set of instruments because there's a variety of percussion instruments. Um, Do you think each of the set of drums is supposed to represent a particular sound from outside her apartment? I think you could definitely use your imagination and Mm -hmm. think of it that way. I mean, at any point, you know, if you're walking down the streets of New York City, you hear like, it's just cacophony mostly. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe COVID has changed that a little bit. It's a little bit less of a hustle and bustle, but I mean, you know, you have your construction work, your jackhammers, your subways, your car horns, your everything. And those pitches do range from the high to the low. And so I, I imagine if you put some, put some thought into it, you could definitely like picture each drum as a specific sound. Mm-hmm. And what does the flute represent in this? I like to think <laughs> that the flute represents like, so even in a place kind of as mechanical and sometimes like, um, I don't want to say robotic, but you know, people go to work, they come back. It's very, you know, like same routine thing every day. Yeah. Thank you. That is exactly the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the flute kind of represents like the beauty that can be found in all these kind of little pockets um, within the city itself, you know, like people have window box gardens, there's obviously Central Park, there's birds, even if they're pigeons, um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of life as well, you know, and I think that's um, kind of what the flute represents, at least to me. That's interesting, you know, because when, when you described the piece immediately, my mind went to uh, the drums being the, the soundscape and the flute is her. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like sort of existing in this cacophony of sound. I like that too. I know. I was gonna, and I was going to say, I like your interpretation too. <laughs> so I, it was, it was a cool piece, you know, and it- I actually, I think I follow Allison on social media and mm-hmm. I think it was the very beginning of the pandemic because um, this work has been, I don't remember when it was written, but she recently reorchestrated it. Um, it was initially for flute and four percussion. Um, Then she did another rearrangement of flute and three percussion, and they put a video together at the beginning of the pandemic um, with that kind of like isolated recording style Mm -hmm. um, that she put on Instagram or Facebook or something like that. And I just happened to see. Um, And then when this uh, opportunity came along for the show, I was kind of like, even though it did end up working out really, really well, where like it was kind of that one to one ratio of like, oh, this piece fits this artwork perfectly. 
I was I was gonna do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're like now it's a mission. I must do it. It's it's just so much fun, and I think um, it also represents a lot of what I like to do in chamber music, which is I I've done a lot of work with flute and percussion, mm -hmm. and I think this was. Um, an opportunity to just work with a lot of the people that I enjoy working with. And one new person um, uh -huh. that I haven't worked with in like years and years and years. Um, so it's it's gonna be really fun to put it all together. Very cool. And as a little plug, talk about some Elliot Cole. That's right. Let's talk about some Elliot Cole and his collection of postludes. Um, Nicole, I didn't really know who Elliot Cole was to start out. Um, do you have any background around um, Elliot Cole? You know what? I don't. And this is one of those pieces that I was brought to me, hmm. um, kind of, as our percussionists really wanted to do. I think knew him from, uh, they did Bang on a Can together. Mm. Um, okay. So it was like okay. a personal relationship. Got it. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, I want to mention to you, I thought it was very beautiful, very relaxing. Um, and I almost felt like I stepped into an acupuncture office when I was listening to this because I feel wow, that's also, so specific. And I and I and I know. And it, it, I wrote down that they have all these very collected ethereal sounds and also very spacious activity. And I want to ask you while you're listening to this, I, I find for me it would be very, very good sleeping music, maybe some very slow yoga. I think that's something that you may, you might do. Um, what do you do while you listen to this? I, okay, so I was on the exact same wavelength as you, Sean. Thank you. Um, I actually, um, so a few summers ago, I got really heavy into meditation and I found that I could really only do it when I was listening to some kind of soundscape. And I tried a bunch of different things. I tried like rain sounds. I tried birds in a forest. Um, and what really, really finally stuck with me was like the Tibetan bowls. Um, and like, I don't know if you've seen pictures or been to like any, um, any place that does this kind of like particular sound bath, but well, actually Hunter's doing the like bowl and like where you take the, um, like the beater, I guess, like around the rim right. of the yeah. bowl. I was yeah. thinking of like, um, when they have like a body of water. Hmm. and they put like the bowls on the body of water and just introduce like little waves and then the bowls like hit each other in this kind oh. of, like, random sequence of things right um yeah. and that's yeah. what this kind of reminded me of is that kind of and why i enjoy using it in my meditation over other things right. is because as a musician your mind really tries to like organize these pitches and for me, that was something that I could focus my meditation on was right. trying to actively stop my brain from organizing and allowing it to be this kind of randomness and being able to like live in this randomness and have it feel okay to me. Um, right. So it gave me a really good focal point for meditating. Right. right. I think it's a great segue to my next question because this piece is very slow. Like I said, very spacious. Um, what do you like about slow energy pieces? Do they speak more or, or less to you based on the content or the context of what you're listening to? I mean, I definitely tend to gravitate towards um, kind of slower paced things, especially when I'm trying to do work and concentrate. Um, mm -hmm. I save right. the fast paced, like 
allegro movements for when I'm driving on the throughway and really need to go like another. <laughs> right. Okay, wait, funny story. Right. The only part or only speeding ticket I've ever gotten was because I was listening to the first movement of uh, Prokofiev's classical symphony and or fourth <laughs> movement. And I was going like 15 over and the police officer stopped me and he was like why? And I'm like, Prokofiev, Prokofiev made me do it. And he was like, okay, I'm going to give you a ticket now. <laughs> he was clearly not a Prokofiev fan. That's funny. Um, yeah, I, I have to say the collection of these um, are all different, but they all work together really well. And I thought that was just something that, that spoke to me about this piece. Anything else that speak to you about this piece? You know, actually, my favorite aspect of the piece, um, which like if you watch the show, you'll be able to see is so it's scored for four percussionists mm -hmm. and vibra vibraphone, but like singular vibraphone. So you have four people, two on each side, and they're playing the entire work with two bows. So like one in each hand. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of like it's also interesting to watch because it's a dance of like people reaching over and reaching for this note and like also trying to like work together it, it actually kind of turns out like when you watch it live to it like it's a lot more harmonious i think and it, it kind of right. gives you this nice energy of like it's like watching cooperation in action you know right yeah and it's interesting that it's called postlude because it's very metaphorical that you listen to it after the action happens and I think that's exactly what he's trying to do. I think that makes sense. Did you want to elaborate on that at all? I actually never thought about it like that, but that's like a really, that's a really interesting thing to think about. And especially like in this, the setting that we are right. um, doing is like, it's going to be pre-recorded and then broadcast at a later date. So it's like a post post blued. Um, <laughs> and right. okay. I think that also maybe speaks a little bit like, to the piece of like it feels like it's a lot of like this like residual energy right like that's what a vibraphone is it's like it's sound and especially a bowed vibraphone is right. the sound is from all of these residual actions and i wonder if like that is what he elliot cole was thinking of when he titled it postludes yeah that's a question we can all think about because i think it's just where does sound happen and where does it begin? And I think he started thinking about where it ended and that's maybe where he started thinking about the word postal because initially when I listened to it, it just made sense that that was the connection that I had to make because there was no prelude, there was no like middle lewd, you know? So he had to pick one of the two. Um, but I do want to get to Hunter's favorite composer. So Hunter, take away with number three. Go ahead, get into it. Yeah, so, you know, I'm gonna seem like an uncultured swine here. And just like, I should have been more academic about this piece than I actually was. But I suppose it's John Cage for you, so we should expect the unexpected. Uh, what is the purpose of this piece, Radio Music by John Cage? Um, what, what was he going for with this? Or start, if you wouldn't mind, start by explaining to the listeners, what is this piece? Okay, so radio music is exactly what it sounds like, which is it is for eight players, each with their own like radio. And when I say radio, I mean like AM, FM, dial, mm -hmm. um, things. We actually had to like scavenge for these at like um, <laughs> Goodwills and things like that um, to find them because no one has them anymore. Um, so what it is, like the score, quote unquote, is um, just a series of instructions and timestamps. 
of when you need when each player needs to move to a different station and it's just numbers like and obviously depending on where you live depending on what year it is um these numbers can be real stations or they could not be um and you never know so it's going to be you know kind of different every time and that was sort of my next question was is it intended to evolve with time as music changes Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure like, you know, even within John Cage's life, um, I mean, you perform this, I don't know, 10 miles in one other direction, you're going to get like a whole different set of radio channels and stations um, that will work or not work. And I think that was the intention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when people, uh, the majority of people who would probably watch a, re a performance of this or listen to a recording of it, if you would even do that, um, would probably s sit there and question, one, why am I watching this? And two, is this, can this be classified as music because you're listening to other music that might be coming out of the radio, but how do you think this classifies as like a, a form of composition? You know, I think much in the same way as like the famous 433, that's oh, the yeah. question. That's the exact question that we're supposed to be asking ourselves is what is music? Mm -hmm. Can silence be music? Can white noise be music? Can all of these different things be described as music? And it's so funny to me. Like, um, I first described this piece to my parents and they're like, yeah, that sounds like it's going to be horrible and like hurt my ears. And like, we're just going to be listening to like static the whole time. And I was like, but I mean, like there will be certain pieces playing. Like we could turn to a station. It can be Britney Spears. And like, you uh -huh. know, you might listen to 60 seconds of Britney Spears. And like, is that not music now that it's in the context of like these, this other thing, like, why does that snippet now not classify as music? And I think that's like really the thought experiment that went into this piece. Yeah, and that's sort of some, you know, I, what I was trying to get at was, you know, why did he write this? What made him think, let me put together these eight, how many is it, six or eight? Eight. Eight radios and have the players turn at these certain points to these particular stations so, you know, I, I, I never know what's going on in the head of, of a composer who puts stuff together like this. I mean, I suppose it's what you're saying, right, to make us question, but like, how do you even come up with that? <laughs> I mean, I probably know what the answer for John Cage was, but we'll leave that off of the podcast. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think like a lot of his music is really essential in that way in terms of like what we've been able to do since that point because he made all of these things like silence static inanimate objects like um like tree leaves and water and like all mm -hmm. of these other things turn them into into music more or less and so i think like you know, it really helped turn people on to like, you know, there's music all the time, you know, if you're sitting outside and listening to nothing, like just that ambient sound can be music if that is your frame of mind. So that's, so do you think that's really what it's about is, you know, the minute you put the definition or that you put the label of organization on something or the focus on something that makes it music? 
Yeah. And I think actually, you know, I took a class um, at San Francisco called Experimental Music Theater. Um, and we spent mm -hmm. a whole class on 433. Um, oh, dear and God. I think like one of the biggest points that someone brought up is the fact like there is a score, there is mm -hmm. music, there's a rest written, or like I think it's the tacit. Um, and like the and performer is instructed to walk out, you know, and bow and like do all these other things like that they normally would. Mm -hmm. And like that is kind of like what sold us like on, you know, what our expectations versus mm -hmm. actual reality. Um, and so that's what I'm really interested to hear um, and see the reaction of the people watching um, when we perform this is like how many people are just going to immediately write this off because they thought it was going to be, I don't know, something cooler, like some kind of melody or, you know, it's like my mom, when she watched Cats, hated it because there was no plot. And I'm like, at no point <laughs> does the title imply that yeah. there's going to be a plot. It implies that there will be cats. Yeah. Um, and that's all you're guaranteed. <laughs> so it'll be really interesting. And I think um, hopefully spark some good conversation. And actually, after the um, show, we're doing a Q&A um, talk back with the audience. So I'm hoping that um, this is a question that gets brought up. And maybe, you know, we can have a lively debate about. <laughs> yeah, that could be interesting, right? And it gives the audience, people who might not know this kind of music or, or know the concept behind it, a chance to understand, which an audience doesn't usually get unless someone, you know, writes program notes and they read the program notes. Because who does that? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm definitely one of those people who does that. And like, I get looks like you really seem invested in that. <laughs> um, so with that, we'll move to something a little less abstract, though maybe, you know, not as much. Um, with uh, some John Luther Adams. That's right. Let's talk about some John Luther Adams. And the song in question is Make Prayers to the Raven. Um, Nicole, I actually knew his Become Ocean before mm. I listened to this. And I really like that. It's very satisfying, beautiful, and I think very stunning. Like we talked about with soundscapes earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote down that it seems like a dark context, make prayers to the raven, but the piece itself is so just so relaxing to listen to. Um, what do you think the raven has to do with this piece? So this piece was originally commissioned um, I can't remember the exact context, but it is like a celebration kind of of indigenous cultures, I want to say in Canada. Um, and I think like it's a very like, um, like personal and sacred thing to like this particular group of people. Um, and that this was like a, a celebration of that and a tribute to that. Um, it's, it's a really, really gorgeous piece. And so all of the titles um, are in um the indigenous language and they're just like really they have like such heartfelt titles like it's like to my relatives and um i can't remember the other ones off the top of my head but like it's just all very familial i guess like it seems like it's a very personal personal right. piece right yeah i felt that way too when i was listening to it and there's a really beautiful flute solo at the end of this piece it's very elaborate and very nice. Um, that definitely struck me. Um, what were your, some of your major takeaways from this piece? Um, so I don't know 
Become Ocean being one of John Luther Adams' most like famous pieces, um, right. you listen to that, you listen to this piece, and it's very, you know, calm, relaxing, and it seems like so just effortless, like you're floating. And mm-hmm. then you get the music, and you're just like, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm sorry, what? So <laughs> I listened to it. I listened right. to it multiple times. Right. And um, we actually corresponded with um, John Luther Adams and told him we were doing this piece. Very cool. And he said, like, good luck. It's really, really hard. And I was like, <laughs> what? I listened to it. Thanks, John. It, it sounds like so easy. It sounds so nice. And I like sat down and looked at my part and I'm like, no, that's pretty straightforward until I realized that um so it's scored for flute violin cello percussion um and mm. harper piano and we're doing it with harp right and right. um half of the ensemble is playing um in a big six and the other half is an eight and those there's like dotted rhythms like crazy and like but somehow somehow he like makes it seem like it's seamless and these time signatures even though you know they kind of fit like very oddly together they feel and sound like just this seamless blend it's really incredible the writing is really incredible and i also challenge you like if you enjoy become ocean if you look at the score it's the exact same thing Right. You're just like, oh, this sounds so nice. It must be like really easy. And then you're like, oh my gosh, this is the hardest thing I've ever like <laughs> ever asked me to do. Because it's like right. crazy rhythms and like all these like tiny odd subdivisions, but like against right. all of yeah. these other odd things. Right. You know, I was gonna say I'm 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 very hopeful that you're using harp for this one. I like that you're doing that. Um and uh, of course, because your your harpist is named Hope. Um, so, um, what is something you wish to know about this piece for yourself? What is something that if you were talking to John again, what would you want to talk to him about? I would really, really just love a little bit more insight into how he, his compositional style mm-hmm. and how he knows that like these complicated things are just going to kind of come out so seamlessly and I think that's Mm. like the interesting thing about his music is like there's something for everyone it's like it's very nice to listen to but it's also like really really difficult to the musician and especially now in a small chamber ensemble like it's going to be really really difficult Mm. and I think like that just speaks to his mind as well. I know he draws a lot of his inspiration from nature. Um, obviously, I think most of his pieces have some kind of natural influence. Right. Um, and so I think it'd be really interesting to see how like, the, I'm sure like the nature and like the numbers, natural numbers and like sequences and fractals all fit into <laughs> his um, into his pieces. Right, right, yeah. I just was floored listening to this piece. It was just so random. And, and you're right saying that um, he does do certain things like that. Um, I definitely agree with you on that. And I'm looking forward to trying to read uh, Become Ocean one day. I think that definitely sounds like a challenge. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I do want to get the next Hunter. Next Hunter. Well, the next uh, <laughs> next uh, song over to Hunter. So Hunter, take it away. All right, so the next song that we'll be talking about is Duo by Jesse Montgomery, although I do believe that it has a longer title, right? It's Duo, was it for violin, wait, what is it called? 
Or violin and cello. Right, violin and cello. Um, and I, of, of the songs that I've been in charge of, I think it's the most conventional of them. Um, mm -hmm. It was a, it's a nice uh, duet by the the two instruments. Do you have a, a favorite movement of this piece? I like the first movement. I think there's just something that's so playful and fun. And really, I think one of the things that Jesse does really well is writing for those particular instruments individually, but also creating, it almost seems like a, well, I can't even say violin cello because like that's really, but like, you know, if you could, vicello. <laughs> vicello. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in in Italian, the the name for it is the violoncello, right? That's the the mm -hmm. cello's full name. So I feel like that's a good that's a good mesh <laughs> sort of long but descriptive name. Um, and you know, violin and cello they're probably two of the most paired instruments in in the classical world. I think you see them you see them paired a lot. And obviously, we were just talking about how the two they fit so well together, but. What do you think is it about those two instruments, besides the fact of both strings, that make them work so well together? You know, okay, I don't, I don't want to like disparage on my like wind friends here because mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's never, it's never good to like alienate yourself. But I do think like also there's something about string instruments that make them work better especially in duos and i even want to say like string quartets like just work a lot better than wind quintets not just because it's like the same instrument kind of more or less just like different mm -hmm. variations but also you can see things like you can see <laughs> you can see bows you can see all these other things and where i have to wait for someone to like give me like a <gasps> to like let me know that we're starting <laughs> i can just look Right. Like a jutting chin. <laughs> no, you're right. There is. It, it's. Uh, I think the the string instruments they allow for a little more of like a physicality that you know an interaction between people. It's a more whole body thing. And when I mean I'm a clarinet player, so I mean there's not a whole lot of moving that goes on with with me either. So you know unless you're you're trying to like go up and you know you're pointing. You know I heard someone say uh, clarinet players stir the pot. And blue, blue players, yeah. blue players row the boat, and the saxophone players do the chicken wing. That's really funny, <laughs> and it's true because that's so accurate. That's, that's it is. It's it's entirely true. It's so accurate. Um, and with the strings, obviously, I, mean, I think you have a little more uh, leeway because, like, you can use your eyes, maybe your hand if you can stop for a moment. Um, but it was a, it was a cool piece. What drew you to this one? Because obviously, there's no. Uh, there is no wind component to this one and being a flutist as you are <laughs> you know sometimes sometimes even as a flutist and like being as um self-centered as some people think that we are we do i <laughs> try to put myself on the sidelines sometimes yeah um, no but uh so what we really wanted to do was um we've actually had this piece on our back burner for a long time um our violin and cello players um have really wanted to oh we good Okay, I'll keep talking. Um, <laughs> our violin and cello player really wanted to put this together because we went and heard um, the Buffalo Chamber players do Starburst by Jesse Montgomery, which is a piece for string orchestra. And that piece, like, and she was there too. So we got to meet her, talk to her. Um, and we just knew that we had to like- That's no pressure at all. 
Yeah, right. Um, so we really knew that we wanted to work with her and do more of her music because like she writes really cool stuff. Like it's just and it's like <laughs> the kind that appeals to everyone. Like it's fun, it's fast, it's like energetic, and it's like just it can be beautiful, it can be loud, it can be exciting, and she just does everything really well. Oh, that's very cool. And now these are these are ones that you're pairing with artwork, correct? Mm-hmm. And what is the artwork that goes with this piece? This is a bunch of different like lines and everything. And that kind of feeling of like watching lines come apart and come back together, which is like exactly what this piece does. Yeah, you know, that is a really good image of, of how it sounds. And like, you know, that's weird to say like, oh, it sounds like a visual, but it, it does give that sense off of it. And if, if people listen to the song, uh, I think they would get the same reaction and i realized i never asked you for the other ones um what are you what artwork are you pairing with uh um postludes radio music and make um, prayers the postludes is a really interesting piece i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head if you want um remind me i'll send you a link to all the exhibits so that if anyone wants to go check it out um they can actually see the artwork that um i'm talking about but um yeah the postludes is kind of like this, it looks like a dystopian kind of like camp where, mm. you know, there's like just like three people kind of like gathered around a campfire. Um, and it's like very dark and very, but like very, <laughs> like, you know, it's like civilization is kind of like still trying to like move on, um, mm. even though, you know, there's nothing left. Um, my favorite piece though, and I'll, I'll definitely, give you the names of these so that I can do them more justice but the John Luther Adams piece um, is a work on climate change and this is super cool so there is a series oh. of like three um, polar bears that are mounted and stuffed um, or they look like they're mounted and stuffed and when the temperature fluctuates in different regions of the world the eyes light up um, in the exhibit oh so we'll be like watching in real time, like all of these very real climate changes um, as we do this piece about like indigenous culture and like how, you know, we kind of like don't necessarily acknowledge um, the land on which our country and bu was built on. And like, you know, that we kind of took over and like urbanized and did all these things. So it'll be a really, you know, kind of poignant display, I think. That's pretty cool. Um, and with that, we are going to be uh, going to the break, and if uh, which will, by the way, be sponsored by our friends at Anchor. Um, and Nicole, we're going to attach a playlist of your music to this so that you can, um, or not you, but listeners can uh, see the pieces that we're talking about, and we can also have them listen if they so choose. So we shall be right back. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find out ways to reach out to us. And you will find our social media and ways that you can contribute to said podcast. And Nicole, we will be right back, so don't go away. All right, and we are back with your friend and ours, Platinum member, uh, Nicole Murray. Uh, her being here the fourth time, if she comes back a fifth time, we have to offer her a free sub. Uh, we'll have to get her that her card punched and we'll do that for her. 
Um, so uh, the next song we're going to talk about is Goat Radio by uh, Walt Whitman. Oh, and wait. Scratch that. Reverse that. <laughs> oh, gracious me. Did I write that wrong? Maybe I did. Um, it Walt Whitman by Goat Radio. Goat Rodeo. Goat Rodeo. Rodeo. Yeah. Rodeo. Rodeo. Oh, Jesus, I can't even figure out how to say Rodeo or Radio. All right. I'm glad that you said Radio Music. You have Hunter. Radio Music on the brain. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A little stuck right now. I I think you sent this to me actually in your first playlist, if I'm if I'm not wrong, different which piece. makes sense. Different different piece. Different piece. Different piece. Yeah. But I love this piece. It is so awesome. Um, what was your first reaction to this piece? Okay, if you like all promise not to like say anything, I definitely like cried. And I'm not mm. kidding. It's so mm. it's so so pretty. And I was I remember because this is the first time I listened to it. So this is the second album that um Goat Rodeo Sessions has put out. Right. And I hadn't gotten around to listening to it yet. And I started listening to it right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember like I was on a walk um, and there was no one around and there were all these signs that were like closed for, you know, like do not touch, like don't all these things. And I was just like, and then this like beautiful, beautiful song came on and I was just like, oh my gosh, I have so many emotions right now. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. Oh, right. I, you know, it's so funny. I think we talked about this the first time that you were here, which, which feels like almost like five years ago. Um, <laughs> but we, we talked about how this could be really great study music, I think. Probably. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Yeah. What do you think about that? It's a little bit too melodic for my taste. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mostly because, like, I don't know. I think I need to have, like, that, like, Tibetan right. bowl kind of... <laughs> vibe for me to like actually zone out right. because i i listen to this and it's sure. just like all i can hear is like the artistry and the motion and like the it's just so many things and i right. you know i would totally get distracted um but that's me that's totally me <laughs> right nicole i want you to react to these names i'm going to talk about yo-yo okay. ma N never heard of them <laughs> <laughs> stuart duncan Mm. Edgar Meyer, Chris Tile. What names? Um, when you think of all these musicians put together in a room, do you think of country music or do you think of any any sort of genre in that category? I mean, like, definitely. I mean, I feel like out of all of those names, almost the only one that I wouldn't put in that grouping would be Edgar Meyer, only because I've only ever known him in the context of being like the only person who could ever like be a prolific bass soloist. Um, right. And everyone out like Yo-Yo Ma, I feel like I always think of like Silk Road Project and like, um, you know, the very classical world, but I know he does a lot of other genres, but Actually, Chris Thiele is, I know him from the Punch Brothers, um, right. which is right. like very bluegrass. So I'd be like, that would be the only one that I would be like, okay, yeah, I can see you making like a bluegrass album. Right. Um, I think Stuart Duncan right. is also a bluegrass artist as well. Yeah, yeah. And and something that I really love about the song, and it's really funny that you had said that you didn't like as much melody as there is in this, but 
I I really did enjoy the melody, and when that strumming just comes back in and leads back into the melody, it's so impactful and so meaningful. Um, do you have any memories that associate with this song, or, or any memories that you feel like um, might depict this particular song? Yeah, I spent a lot of times in the mountains in Colorado, and that's mm. a place that I feel actually most at home, like, and I think when the pandemic hit, that was the very first thing that like really hit me as like being a super like it felt like very, very sad was the fact that, you know, even if I wanted to, I didn't couldn't get to like these places um, that I love so much. Right. And there's something about being out in Colorado and like there's the air smells differently, the gravel crunches differently under your feet. Right. Um, and it's just like so magical. And it it almost like I think this song kind of encapsulated though that feeling of like nostalgia but also loss like you just want something so badly but like right. kind of can't have it mm -hmm. and I feel like that really like summed up how I was feeling like last right. March right I was gonna say the weed tastes differently up there no okay. um <laughs> uh, no let's get into Wouldn't some know. <laughs> um Hunter let's get into some Paul Williams go ahead Sure. So this one, I didn't, I didn't see this one coming out of the blue at all. Um, and it, you know, it's funny. It has almost sort of like a, a Jacob Collier sound to it that I wasn't expecting. Um, and I didn't think I'd like it, but I did. Um, as I understand it, the guy that's Paul Williams, uh, Paul Williams, uh, is relatively new. Um, so where'd you hear about him? Okay. A friend of mine was looking up like it was gathering recommendations for a road trip that he was taking um and turned me on to this guy he's uh yeah young guy from new zealand um not a ton of like new zealand pop stars that i know no. of. um australian sure but like not new zealand um and played me all of his music and i I kind of like really fell in love with it which is so funny because i think hunter like you know you said this is kind of like out of left field, especially for me. Like we just did like John Cage and like all these other guys. And, you know, here's, here's this random New Zealand surf tune, but like, sure. Yeah. Here we are. <laughs> you like yeah. And you, you just like. said with the other piece, you're like, the other one's too melodic for me. And I'm like, wasn't this one? <laughs> it, it's so tonal. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was, it had a cool sound to it. All, and the, of course the one off putting thing was like, he has this like Alvin and the Chipmunks voice going on, and I was I was thinking to myself, I'm sure it's a style choice, but it's a lot of falsetto. Um, what about the song "Strikes You"? I that were like, why'd you pick this one of his tunes that you listen to? Um, so I think actually the falsetto singing is something. So the friend who showed it to me um, is a vocalist and is a tenor. And we had like this whole long conversation about how a lot of like pop artists like don't sing in falsetto a lot. And the fact that he did was something that like really mm -hmm. struck him. And so I started thinking about it and like, you know, you listen to the radio and like, it's so true. So I think that's kind of initially something that I latched onto. The next thing is like, it's, it's just so bizarre. Like, mm -hmm. It's just, but it's so fun. And I feel like this is like total like road trip, beach, fun, like laying out and like just having a good Summer. time. Summer. Yeah. 
but it's like the bizarreness of it that just made it like that little bit quirky. Um, I always have to be just just a little bit weird, so that's why this we don't that's judge. Why this one <laughs> <laughs> out loud. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it is. I totally get that that road trip vibe from it. I think it was it was very cool. And what was funny was I was trying to find him, and it kept bringing me to an older composer who's like eighty now, uh, <laughs> songwriter Paul Williams. And I was like, that's definitely not this guy. <laughs> So that was, that was, and so I just, when I looked up on YouTube, it, it was, it was there, but it's cool. I, I highly recommend a lot of people go listen to it. And uh, now we go to, uh, I'm assuming the singer is St. Vincent. That's right. Assuming not the long dead St. Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nicole, in my mind, this was the dark horse of all of their selections of songs. I wasn't very sure of this one, but um when it came on i was like oh okay i was like she's gonna be singing some progressive rock in this concert <laughs> all right here we go um i didn't know of saint vincent until i listened to the song um just like hunter's gonna ask you uh from the previous song um how were you introduced to saint vincent oh man i feel like this is like a long time ago i heard this art like saint vincent and I think a friend of mine like introduced like had it on vinyl and we would like in undergrad sit outside and like listen to it it's oh, like right. as an artist um she's mm. super super cool um right. and so yeah. this song in particular i have it on my badass box playlist like, <laughs> <laughs> right awesome yeah I, I i love this it was very cool very progressive um and I read that she was nominated for this album as a Grammy-nominated artist, I believe. I think she was almost Artist of the Year. Um, yeah. um, and you know me, Nicole. I am always down to talk about some slam poetry. <laughs> so as our listeners always know, Hunter has his fingers ready to go. Uh, feel free to snap, clap, or whatever you feel like with your foot, with your feet. Here we go. What do you know? I'm just a bad believer. What do you know? What do you know? From the nave and down into the altar, I left my mama sitting in the pew. Knelt before the trembling pastor, fainted as he touched my trembling hand. What do you know? I'm just a bad believer. What do you know? What do you know? Show me your stones. I'm just a bad believer. What do you know? What do you know? Nicole, what is a bad believer? I think it is someone who, you know what, I'm going to change that mm. because that's an interesting thing, right? Like mm -hmm. to believe in something, there is no inherent right or wrong. It's a verb. You can't, right. you can't do it right or wrong. And I think that is mm -hmm. the question of like, right. okay, is it just someone who doesn't follow like the orthodox tradition? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or like believes in something that is more or less like inherently bad right and i think in this in this song mm -hmm. what really like the vibe that i get is like someone who's actually like turning their back on mm -hmm. a certain set of you know ethics or values or religion mm -hmm. or something um right. and kind of ready to just throw it all out the window so i, right. I guess that would also qualify as being a bad believer if you eventually end up not believing <laughs> so a happy pessimist or a sad optimist as you would say <laughs> exactly yeah. love those oxymorons <laughs>
Um, and I want to ask you about this briefly because it was really interesting because I, I, I didn't really understand what kind of genre it was. And I know Google's not the greatest of determining what kind of genre music is always. Um, but Google calls this progressive rock. Does that define her sound well or maybe not so much? Maybe almost in like the older version of like prog rock. Hmm. Like the very okay. inception of prog rock, like I think like Rush um okay i would i would almost like fit it into that category now so though it almost seems a bit more just like i don't want to say like grungy but no. like a little bit grunge a little bit punk maybe i don't right. know so mm -hmm. it's kind of one of those tough ones actually the funny thing is she also has like a, a separate career as a dj um hmm. under the name saint vicious and so like a very versatile musician um in her own right, right. um and right. actually some of the stuff that she just put out an album like i don't know a couple weeks ago or not an album like a single that's going to lead to an album and right. it's also like just very different um right. different sound different production so it'll be mm. interesting to see kind of like what the trajectory of uh, her career ends up being and i'm also excited to hear you sing this song <laughs> in the uh concert that you guys are doing no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, Hunter, you want to talk about some Decemberance? I would love to. So this piece, um, I, I watched the music video for it, and I was like, I was really confused because all of a sudden Nick Offerman was there talking to the lead singer, and I was like, that's weird. Um, so it, it was just, it was bizarre. They were like having an interview and Nick Offerman was playing a French guy, which again, made no sense. Um, I read they're a performance-based group, um, almost like satirical, a lot of historical context in their work. Um, what's the reference in this song? Any idea? I actually don't know. <laughs> no? I, I couldn't tell you. A lot of a lot of their music um, is based in like that kind of like storytelling um, genre and they actually take different kind of levels like they have um, one like Mariner's song which is like you know your typical like sea shanty and then mm -hmm. they also have like more Americana storylines and so it's like very I think there's just like the whole point is like to pick up these different versions of storytelling and for me this this piece in particular is like actually probably their most like just poetic and like abstract as opposed to like you know he did this, then he did that, and then like they all went to the store together. Um, I feel like this is probably yeah the most <laughs> interesting. I, I, I didn't know because I, I had never heard of the group before, um, so I wasn't sure if it, that if it was picked for the reason of context. Um, having said that, then what is the art being paired with this song? Actually, this one's not on the concert. This is just. Oh, this like, is not. This is like my playlist portion. Ah, that. this. So this half is all stuff not in the concert. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes more sense. Um, and they're, as far as I know, a rel or at least here, an obscure group. But then again, I'm not the one who should judge because everyone has been obscure to me so far. Um, so well, you know. And how did you happen upon them? Um, I had a very, like, so it's interesting because a lot of these artists are, like, very big in, like, okay, I'm, this is going to sound like an oxymoron, but, like, very big in, like, the indie subculture. Um, 
but yeah. uh, <laughs> I was like had a very like hipster phase and like undergrad and this song came out or this album came out um I think my the senior year of my undergrad um and again once again my roommate had it on vinyl Mm-hmm. And so we would actually just like we had a really beautiful porch um and so we would put it on and like drink lemonade out on the porch and it's like that's that was like our the spring of my senior year so it was like a very poignant memory. Oh that that's pretty cool image. I'm just imagining you know you sitting there like lounging with the sun, the vinyl record. <laughs> being a college student, it's a very poetic image. Um so okay, so they are bigger in the in the indie world, which obviously you know the indie world is not always well known to the public, but you know it's like an in crowd. Um, I mean, it was a cool, it was a cool song. It was actually pretty melodic. I mean, it was it was not harsh sound. It had a very soft sound to it. I thought um, different from uh, well, obviously the other some of the other things that you picked, but you would think because it was a I don't know, whenever you associate electric guitar and anything, I always think of it as being harsh, but this wasn't, it was, it was relatively soft. So I don't know, I thought it was cool. Anything else about this song that you think is noteworthy? Yeah, I think I think my, whenever I hear it, it also like instantly takes me back to this memory of like, um, I think my friend and I, we used to like just go on random drives to like, nowhere and just drive for hours and hours back when we like didn't care about like the cost of gas and like wearing <laughs> and stuff um but i remember like we just like went on a super long drive and like i kind of got overwhelmed by this moment of like crap i'm graduating and like life is about to change and like this song like so every time i hear it i feel like it's kind of like my transition song of like you know moving from one phase of life to the other and it and like it's kind of like makes you nostalgic for the old part but also like kind of gives you this little bit of like hope that you know it's change and change for the most part is good and so you should like embrace it in your life as well mm-hmm. so that's that's what this song makes me think it's an emotionally charged song yeah oh yeah it is and another emotionally charged song is the is your last pick, which I know Sean's going to talk a lot about. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, we're going to talk about Do You Hear the People Sing from one of Hunter's favorite musicals, Les Mis. Um, you, Nicole, you wanted to talk about something more specific with this song. So I will try to stay out of the way, and, and you can talk about it as much as you can. Um, now, you wanted to talk about the crisis in Myanmar. Um, mm. What is the connection you want to make to that with this song? So much like this song in the um, book and the musical, subsequent musical, um, being a battle cry um, for the people in France, um, this song has similarly become a battle cry for the people of Myanmar. Um, So I'm not sure, you know, how much um, you're aware of the humanitarian crisis that's happening there but essentially um the military has seized control and there's like a lot of people dying and a lot of which are children um and all these protests that are keep coming up are getting squashed and like there's a lot of um a lot of riots a lot of attempts at peaceful protests but just a, it's like not it's not going well and so um last week i think um was lucky enough to, um, we have a very large Burmese refuge, 
refugee um, community here in Buffalo. Um, so they organized a protest um, just to raise awareness and, you know, to get everyone to like write their senators and write, you know, their local government um, so that the U.S. will help out. Um, but they used the song much in the exact same way that, you know, the um, French people used it um, in the revolution there, um, used it in the same way. And it was just kind of like in really this incredible moment of like just historical, like, you know, history repeating itself. It's like almost the same, the same thing again. Right. What should be people's takeaway from from what's happening right now? I think it's really, 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 really important um, that people, A, are aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. And this is kind of like, you know, the longer it's gone on, I think it started in early February, like the first week of February. Um, and it's kind of gone through highs and lows of like intensity, but um, mm -hmm. just keeping up on it because it kind of has faded a little bit from like, you know, the headlines and the news stories. Um, and just having like, you know, understanding what's going on, understanding why it's going on um, is a, is way more powerful actually than um, people think it is. Because when you read about it, like you kind of are definitely moved to action. Um, mm. And then the second part being, you know, if you can write someone, there's um, scripts. There's a lot of scripts available online. Um, again, I can put a resource for those as well. Um, mm. Or like email, even email templates of like writing, you know, any like government, um, that you can all the way, all the way up to the top, um, just kind of creating as much noise and making sure that um, the people there receive the um, resource and help that they need um, right. to hopefully, hopefully like just survive this, but also overthrow the military. Right, right. And I want to mention that uh, for those who do want to help, you can go to www.humanitarianresponse.info slash en or go to www.helppage.org slash what we do slash emergencies slash humanitarian response. Uh, so please go there and please tip wisely. Um, anything else Anything else that we can do to help this, Nicole? Um, I also think that talking about it um, is just an important thing to keep doing. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up here, you right. know, reach, reach more people. Um, and then also, like, I'm not sure if you know where you are, there's any refugees, um, but they are like, you know, there's people who haven't heard from family members, there's people who haven't heard from, you know, people who are still over there. And I think it's also important to let them know that they do have like support and a home here. Um, so if you can reach out or donate to like, you know, any refugee centers in your area, I think that's also really important. Right. Yeah. And please do that. Um, let's talk about the song a little bit. Um, and the opening text of the song, as many people would know is, do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the time of the people who will not be slaves again. When beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. What do you think the lyric means to you? What do these lyrics talk to you or how do they speak to you? I think it represents a couple of things. One being that, you know, no one should tolerate being treated poorly. I mean, in really any situation, whether it's like a friend saying, talking about you behind your back or whether it's, you know, any any small personal things, 
um, to the very large of, you know, overpressing, um, a repressive military regime. But I think the other thing important here and the important theme of um, this song is the fact that, like, finding other people and connecting to other people and that, like, community and that collaboration and I don't want to say teamwork because that seems a little bit like juvenile, but um, like finding others to believe in your cause and rallying them. That's that's what I'm looking for um, is also really powerful. And like there's kind of no end to the things that you can achieve when you have a group of people all working towards the common goal. Right. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to mention, uh, I, I know I said it when I was introducing the tune, uh, this is one of Hunter's favorite musicals, so I wouldn't be doing the song justice without giving him a chance to talk about some of his, some of his favorite aspects of the song. So Hunter, take it away. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I think any song that has such a large, uh, a large uh, choral part, you know, has the ability to be very powerful. But my question to you is, you know, it's about the song is clearly an anthem, right? And we were just talking about how it was used in Myanmar um, by the people as a battle cry and anthem. Um, and what do you think it takes for a song to take on that persona? What, what turns something from just a, a piece or a song to an anthem? What makes an anthem an anthem? I think having... There, there is a couple of things that make this song in particular an anthem. And I think one is like, it's literally a marching tune. Like it yeah. is a, it is a march and it is like a literal call to action. You are literally called to move in step with the people who mm -hmm. you're uniting with. Mm -hmm. And then second, it's also really memorable and very catchy and very easy to teach. And it repeats and there's no like elaborate, you know, vocal aerobics in the main melody. Um, and so anyone can sing it, anyone can learn the words. Um, and that's what, you know, I think makes it accessible um, mm -hmm. to everyone. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, you know, we've seen over the years, there have been songs in pretty much every culture that they've taken on as an anthem, whether it's official or not. Um, a while ago with another guest we had talked about, and I teach this sometimes in our classes for Italian, um, Giuseppe Verdi wrote a, a, a piece called Va Pensiero, which was in the opera Nabucco, and the Italian people rallied behind it, and it became an anthem for their, uh, their unification and their independence from uh, the other powers that were inhabiting the peninsula at the time. And... You know, it always strikes me that, you know, he clearly, you know, the song was written to be a part of a larger work, much as this song was written to be a part of a larger work. It's, you know, in the context of the play. And yet sometimes it just speaks to people so out of context. You know what I mean? Like it, there's it. And for all the reasons you describe, it, it pulls itself out of the larger work and it can stand alone. And what do you think that, I mean, we know what the theme of it is, but what do you think those themes that allow it to stand on its own are? What does the song talk about? I think it's exactly just that unification, that like communal feeling that, that, um, that make it's a choral, choral piece. And like, you need to be in a group of people to sing it. And I think like, just that's, what makes it 
if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Um, yeah, it is a powerful piece for those of you who don't know it. Uh, I think it's known by, known by pretty much the entire theater community. But for those of you who are not theater people uh, or who those who are not familiar with the current crisis going on, uh, I highly recommend you go listen to it. It gives you a sense of sort of uh, the the rally call, the battle cry, the anthem that we're talking about, that feeling everyone has sort of felt it at some point, uh, and it can be a, a very powerful tool. Uh, so with that, you know, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna be sponsored by Anchor. And uh, for those of you listening, we are on social media, much to the very uh, fine efforts of Sean, and they are the, the following platforms are Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And our handles are as follows. On Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. On Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. On TikTok, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. Sorry, at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And on the YouTube, we are Music speaks podcast so we will be right back with a flute quiz for nicole right after this all right uh, we are back with our platinum member nicole murray talking about some flute and especially this one is called flute 12 questions i believe if nicole gets all of them right i believe we do owe her a sub um nicole are you ready for this quiz you're just making me hungry, so I don't know. Now, but, um, no, I'm just kidding. Let's go. Okay. Okay. Here we go. And I'm going to try to read them as best as they can because these questions are very well written, or the answers are not also well written, just as a heads up. But here we go. <laughs> what family does the flute belong to? Is it A, woodwind, B, brass, or C, persecution? I've never heard of that before. Is that new? <laughs> no, it, they just <laughs> misspelled the word percussion. <laughs> Oh my God. Sometimes percussion is persecution. Um, it, who you ask. it can be. Um, I would have to say woodwind then. That is absolutely correct. Oh my God. Um, how many pieces are there in a flute? Is it one, two, three, or five? How many pieces are there in a flute? Like of a flute? In the flute, <laughs> it says. How many pieces are there in a, the flute? Okay, I'm going to say three. That is absolutely correct. Great. Right. Okay. That is awesome. Otherwise, you've been doing it wrong this whole time. Well, right. I was going to say, like, <laughs> there's a lot of, like, pieces, like, to a flute. There's, like, keys and stuff, but I guess they're not <laughs> counting that. That is correct. Um, question three. What is a person called that plays the flute? Is it flutist, flute player, flutter, or fluter? I wish it was fluter. That'd be way that'd be way better. But I think it's flutist or flautist, depending on who you talk to. That is absolutely correct. What are flutes made out of? Gold, rose gold, or silver, or the the most favorite, all of the above. It's definitely got to be all of the above. That is absolutely <laughs> correct, Nicole. Here we go. Wow. What were flutes original? Made out of before metal. Is it, <laughs> is it is it wood metal? They have always been the same or cane. 
Did you find this question or this quiz on Yahoo Answers? Because this is what it's making me feel like. Um, this is on this is on quizzes, if you're wondering. Okay, cool. Quizzes. Um, I I know what they're going for, and what they're going for is wood. That is absolutely correct. Congratulations. But like, technically, the first flutes were made of bone. Ah, very true. That's right. That's right. So this this quiz is incorrect. Uh, question six. <laughs> How many different kinds of flutes are there? One, three, five, or six? Okay, there's way more than that. <laughs> so, okay, they gotta be thinking, okay, piccolo, normal mm -hmm. flute, mm -hmm. alto flute, bass flute, but there's no four. So, but then there's like contrabass flute, there's D flat piccolo, there's flute d'amore, there's like so many more. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's some flawed logic in this one. I'm gonna say five. So close. Um, six. Okay, there's more. <laughs> We've disproved this We've, question. They're, they're, exactly, exactly. We're proving this quiz is wrong <laughs> here today. Now, how old is the flute? Is it a thousand years old, ten thousand years old, fifty thousand years old, or forty-two thousand years old? I, mean, I think it's like older than all of that. But <laughs> again, because like, right? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Apparently, it is forty-two thousand years ago, I according to this quizzes. This math came from because <laughs> something that seems like a very arbitrary number. <laughs> I Very believe arbitrary. you, I believe you, Nicole. I believe you. Um, question number eight Who invented the flute? Some great answers here. I'm sure you're gonna love these Justin Bieber, oh. Thomas Jefferson, Theobald Baum, or George Washington. <laughs> Hunter's bugging his eyes out right now. Oh my gosh, no. George, everyone knows that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were most famous for inventing the flute together. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to have to say Theobald Ben, even though he invented technically the modern flute. Mm, correct. That is absolutely correct, Nicole. In 1863, Question, in case anyone wanted to know. I did want to know that. Where do you line up the embouchure hole on the head joint? Is it the center of the tone holes? The bottom of the tone holes or the top of the tone holes? I know what they're going for, and it's the center, but that's not what they're called. That is correct. But what what are they called? Keys? <laughs> the, tone, <laughs> the tone holes at the top. There's only one. There's the, it's not the, it's the same thing as the ombre. Oh, my God. Okay. Right. One of my favorite questions that we get to ask um, Jeanette uh a few weeks ago was where should you place your flute if you need to leave the room and hunter is already giggling at the sight of this one is it on the stand on a chair or in a safe place closest to the ground <laughs> what if a chair is the safest place closest to the ground ah very that's, true that's pretty pretty deep. i wouldn't put it on the ground so chair might be the next closest thing. But anyway, I'm guessing that's what they're going for in a safe place closest to the ground. In the safe place closest to the ground, Nicole Murray. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Question 11. In an ideal posture, 
where should your chin be? Up, down, or parallel to the floor? I'm guessing they want parallel to the floor, but I mean, your chin goes down that way. So if I were really to have it parallel to the floor, I'd be like up here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. Yeah. There's a lot of logic that does not go well with this, this quiz. I'm so glad that we're picking it apart. Here we go. In I'm ah Jesus. In an ideal posture, where should your elbows be? Should they be tucked in, away from your body, or up? <laughs> okay, away from your body. Sure. That's correct. <laughs> Nicole Murray, you have won yourself a sub. Okay. And also the prize of beating this ridiculous 12-question quiz. So I thank you. And uh, it, I, as I like to say, as always, it is so wonderful to have you here and to talk music. Um, so, again, we'll have to have you come back for a fifth time. Um, but that is it for me, and I will pass the baton back to my friend Hunter. Yes, I will reiterate, it is always a pleasure to have you on. We always have a lot of laughs, a lot of fun. So, uh, and also, don't forget, you will, uh, once I'm done babbling, you will just reiterate about your concert, um, so you could do a little bit of self-promotion there. So I say thank you, and I'll end it with you. Okay, thank you guys so much. You're awesome. Always a pleasure. Um, yeah, please catch the Making Strange show um, on Bridgefield Connects. Um, it'll be broadcast live on Facebook. Um, there's a bunch of event um, links on our page. And it will be on April 30th at 8 o'clock. And you can watch it live and then come hang out with us after. We're all going to be tossing back a few cocktails and answering your questions way too truthfully. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nicole. Take care. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicole. Next time, we will sit down to discuss box Brandenburg number four. So that's it for me. I'm Hunter Sagona. And I'm Sean Kunis. And we'll see you next time. And keep listening to what you love.